Welcome back to the next episode of the Music History Project. In celebration of Women's History Month, please enjoy our interview with Bowden Sandstrom. She is the founder of Women's Sound and a pioneering audio engineer. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Well, welcome back, everybody. Exciting to uh, celebrate Women's History Month with a, a fantastic interview. What a great opportunity we had to interview Bowden Sandstrom during the pandemic. This is actually a, a Zoom interview, so the, uh, the audio quality is maybe just a little bit different than we're normally used to, but boy, oh boy, what a lot of history we're about to hear. Um, just a fascinating career uh, and from a very fascinating standpoint of um, just a development of the women's music movement, especially uh, in the Washington, D.C. area in the 1970s. Uh, very, very historic uh, marches and demonstrations that were going on. Somebody had to do the sound, and that was Bowden. And uh, so she was there front and center, moving microphones around and audio equipment. And so she was right there, and she was bumping into people, everybody, from Joan Baez to Martin Luther King III. I mean, just absolutely incredible. That was the place to be, and she was there. There. And now let's listen to Bowden Sandstrom. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be with us. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. It's, um, it's interesting to me. Um, I, I really feel like I'm talking to a pioneer. Do you feel like you're a pioneer? Yeah, definitely for women. Definitely in the field. That's awesome. That's really yeah. good. So one of the things I think would be really interesting for us to uh, glean from you today is to understand a little bit about how your passion for music and sound developed. Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Yeah, I did. Um, my mom played the piano and sang <clears throat> high soprano in the choir. And my brother was a really good piano player. And uh, I dabbled at the piano a little bit. But um, once I got in, in school when you could start an instrument, I, I went for the trumpet and I played the trumpet quite a few years, but then I switched to French horn because they needed a French horn player. And that was in uh, probably around sixth grade, something like that. And I love the French horn. And I was blessed to be with um, in New York state where all the schools had really good music programs. And so I was, I was near Rochester, New York. So we were influenced by the Eastman School of Music. Um, but we had a great band and orchestra and brass ensemble. And I just, I played every day. I played every day until uh, all the way through graduate school. And in college, I played in a brass ensemble and an orchestra. And I just love playing. It was one of my passions. And so that's, that's my musical background. Um, but then I... Um, uh, when I stopped playing the French horn and I really started to miss me, miss playing and performing. Um, and so when I finally ended up in DC in 72 and saw a woman mix on the stage uh, for one of the first, one of the early women's music concerts, I thought uh, that's what I really want to do to get back into music because I was also interested in science and math. So it seemed, seemed like a perfect fit. That's really, really interesting. To back up just a little bit, um, growing up in, in the New York area and having all those experiences uh, with uh, live music, were there any particular concerts or, or events that stick out in your mind as being meaningful to you? Well, um, let me think. I think, um, well, it's so hard to say. I mean, in school, so many of the concerts, I can remember the music so well. I mean, we played such great music. And now when I listen to it, um, you know, like on, on the classical music station, I just can, I can just feel it. You know, I can feel playing it. Um, so, but in terms of outside school, yeah, I remember going to um, a Stevie Wonder concert 
um, in, in the city. I didn't venture into the city very often. I grew up out in the country. Um, so that was just amazing. And then I can also remember an early Peter, Paul and Mary, Mary concert. And both of those different genres really moved me um, in different ways. So, yeah, I got a, I got a little taste of, um, you know, popular music outside of school early. And then and then that didn't, you know, I didn't really get another taste of that till um, when I went to grad school as a, in, in librarianship at University of Michigan. And that was um, had great coffee house. Saw Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins, and it was just you know amazing. I saw Aretha Franklin in Detroit. So. Oh my gosh, I'm getting jealous. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, the, yes. uh, another thing I thought, I wonder what your your um, the way that you could express having grown up in, in the music environment like that and being able to play and having music teachers and, and mentors to help you. Um, is there anything that you can say you learned from that experience that you have applied in your career? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, well, i I really feel like music learning music in schools in the school system that we had and the kind of conductor that we had that, um, who really cared about us, uh, really inspired us, you know, was that, gave you that inspiration that you could do anything that you wanted to do and, and uh, made you really happy about something, no matter what was going on at home or, or around, around you, you know, how, how awkward we all felt in those, those days. Music was always this great, stable place and we all liked each other and had a great time. So yeah, definitely. But, uh, but in terms of sound, um, you know, playing like the French horn or any instrument in a group like that, you learn to listen. You have to listen to everybody. And so we were in orchestras and bands. So we had to hear all the parts in order to fit in. Um, so that really gave me my next skills, um, being able to listen and learn how to listen. In DC, I was able to, I, you know, really was so lucky and fortunate to start mixing all different kinds of music and even ones I didn't really, wasn't that familiar with, but I could figure out where the different parts should go and how it should be balanced, I think, because of that experience. That's really neat. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, we're all advocates for music here. So anytime I have a chance to talk to somebody like you about those experiences, I always think, oh, good. I know the perfect person to share that with to help inspire, you know, keep going and, you know, focus on, on those experiences because you just never know what you're going to learn uh, that's going to be meaningful to you later. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really an amazing, I think music is just an amazing practice to get into, um, both emotionally and um, in terms of um, relating to people, that kind of thing. There was one little music thing I wanted to share with you, though, in terms of my background. When my parents would go out my brother and I would play, we had a, you know, an LP, big old LP system there. And we would play uh, symphonies. My mom loves symphonies. And so we just would blast around the house, Tchaikovsky's fourth and Shostakovich's fifth and Beethoven violin concerto. And we would just do that regularly. So those pieces are just so in me. <laughs> it's really fun. It's really fun. That's awesome. Very cool. So what... Uh, guided you towards being a music librarian. I also have a background in being a music librarian, so I'm kind of curious how you came to that. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, actually, I didn't become a music librarian. I was a librarian. Um, I never got, at that point, I didn't pursue getting a master's in music, which I was informed that you kind of needed that in order to become the music librarian. But um, how I got into being a librarian was, I had a liberal arts education um, at St. Lawrence University um, with a lot of music. But I also, my other thing is I really love to read. So when I got that out of school too. So I, my part-time job was in the library at St. Lawrence and, um, and I became an English major. I started, I mean, it's kind of a side story, but I became, I started out as a physics major. Um, when I went to St. Lawrence and I was put into advanced physics and advanced math and it was, and it was all guys except me. And it was just way too much um, because uh, girls had curfews back then. 
So they'd all be working on their labs all through the night together. And I was stuck in the in my dormitory and I'd have to talk to them on the payphone in the basement. And I just I really struggled to keep up anyway. So I switched to English. And uh, so I read all the way through college as well as played my instrument. And that's how I ended. And then my English professor, you know, and I was like going, oh, what am I going to do with myself? He suggested, well, you'd probably be a really great librarian. You'd probably really like that. And then I got a work study scholarship at University of Michigan. And then that that was amazing because then I, I became politicized and uh, learned about the world, which I was pretty sheltered before that. And then so DC came next? No, and then I, um, I went from Michigan. I, I applied for jobs and I got offered a job at San Jose State in California and I wanted to go to California. So off I went with no money and had my first library job. And uh, I ended up meeting um, Rogelio Reyes, who, who I married, um, who was also a musician. Um, but we met each other in the uh, loan line because I had absolutely no money to even get an apartment. And he was, he was a professor there teaching English as a second language, but he was also looking for his first paycheck. So anyway, and then, and that was great. And in terms of continuing my political education and uh, the music that I learned from him because he was an excellent um, folk singer. He sang for Cesar Chavez on the picket lines and, um, he also played in a flamenco troupe up in San Francisco at the Spaghetti Factory. We'd go up there every weekend and stay at the, the uh, dancers' houses and eat paella all night. And it was just great. So <laughs> that's, but then um, we went to Boston, we moved to Boston um, so he could finish his PhD in linguistics at Harvard. Um, and I got my second library job at Northeastern University as the head of the circulation department at Dodge Library. So, and then after that, um, then I fell in love with a woman and um, we got a divorce and I moved with her to Washington, D.C. That's how I got to D.C. in 1972. But in the Boston period, I, I um, became a feminist and was in an organization called Female Liberation. Um, and we published a journal called Second Wave. So. Very interesting. And was sound a part of your life at this point at all? No, no. I, I, and then I was a political activist, basically, and besides being a librarian. Um, and there really wasn't, I mean, I did go to concerts. I do, do remember some amazing concerts there. Um, and, but then was when I got to D.C., and I just started missing music. I started missing playing the French horn and... Um, and then I, you know, the women's music was starting to happen. And I went to my first women's music concert and just went, wow, this is great. And then I saw a woman mixing on a stage, Judy DeLugash of Olivia Records. It was the, actually the farewell concert of Olivia Records. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, how do I get to do that? And um, so that's, I just fell in love with it. I thought that would be so much fun. It's interesting to me also about that, that era, you were talking about being politicized. What sort of things were you involved with? Well, in, uh, in San Jose and, and even in uh, Ann Arbor, it was just me learning about the world and gobbling up everything I could read and taking every leaflet that was passed out on the campus. And um, at the same in San Jose, I mean, Rahali was involved um, and he was, he was involved with the Chicano uh, activists, uh, Brown Berets. And, um, and then I through him, I became aware of the San Francisco state strike at that time. And San Jose went on strike too. And Rahalia went on strike, but I, was, I, I just didn't understand enough to, to be willing to do that. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on enough. Um, but uh, so then when I got to Boston was really, um, I started to, to realize with the feminist movement that I, I could understand my life better as a woman, some of the oppression I had felt and some of the confusion. Um, and we, we started with consciousness raising groups as most, most feminists will tell you is how we got started talking to each other about our lives and how to change them. And then 
we've, we've in the conscious raising group, we, we found female liberation, which was a, an, an organized group. And then we started to, um, you know, or organize, uh, putting out journals and um, rallies. We would, we would go to different rallies and have dances and, um, you know, really started to understand and to politicize. And then I even, um, I decided to start working for the, the Vietnam War movement and I became a office manager for the Boston Peace Action Coalition um, and worked on that. And we were, we must have sent a hundred and some buses down to the big, the first big rally uh, in Washington, D.C. We all went down for that. Um, and then we could really, you know, that really helped because we could see the power of people in the streets. Uh, and, you know, it, it was legal. Um, but the, the war started, ended Shortly thereafter, I mean, once all, the, all of us got into the streets, it was really amazing. And we also went to New York City for the gay pride, the, some of the first gay pride marches. And, you know, it was just very powerful, very exciting. That is really neat. That's really cool. Do you think about um, your, your, um, your time with some of these early uh, movements um, as being successful? I mean, how do you equate that as far as um, reflecting back on your participation and what all those folks were trying to do? Yes, I mean, and I, well, I, I ended up, uh, after sound, I ended up teaching, getting a PhD and teaching at the University of Maryland. And I taught a lot of this to my students about the power of, of uh, sound and uh, music in, um, organized political action groups. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of time to, re to reflect on what we did. And I just think we, you know, we had such a tremendous effect on society uh, in terms of one, the anti-war movement, which I already talked about um, ending the Vietnam War. Um, but in terms of women's rights, you know, all the changes that we were able to make. And it took um, organized uh political action, it took coalition building, it took um, being in the streets legally, um, and, you know, getting your voice out. And so we, we definitely saw results there too. And then in terms of civil rights, I mean, we were inspired by the civil rights movement, and the music within the civil rights music. So we kind of got showed how it was done, uh, because that came before us, really. So. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was lucky enough to interview uh, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary, ah. who just happened to mention earlier. And I asked him what role music played in the civil rights movement and some of the uh, other um, political campaigns that he was a part of. And um, he said that you couldn't, you couldn't do it without music. Mm -hmm. You have that same feeling? Absolutely. Absolutely. In so many movements. I mean, it was just the backbone in civil rights. It was also the backbone of the uh, anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. There's a great movie uh, just totally about how music was uh, so valuable in that, in that movement. It's, uh, it's just amazing, um, all the music and all its different facets of how it kept those people going under such odds, um, you know, it makes the case that they couldn't have done it without the music and the chants and all of that. Um, yeah, and, and the, same, the same for us. And in the women's uh, rights movement and the, and the abortion movement, um, so many of the women's music singers that from my underground, our underground network started to sing at the rallies and like Holly Near, um, Kristen Lambs, um, you know, and really inspired those moments. So typically any rally, you would also have musicians singing. The big now rallies down at the mall and yeah. Yeah. Gay um, marches on Washington. Um, they all had just so much music. That's really cool. That's really neat. So you, so, um, so you go to this um, rally and you see this sound engineer and you point and say, hmm, I'd like to do that. What was, what was the next step between that and actually doing it? <laughs> it, was, it was a concert. It was at Lisner Auditorium, George, Georgetown, and it was the farewell concert from Libya Records. 
Um, and Cassie Culver performed there and I fell in love with her and she became my wife. Um, and she was a singer songwriter. So, and she started Woman Sound with me. So it was a, it was an, a, just amazing evening. But anyway, so Judy, in fact, Judy, uh, when I asked her, how do I get to do this? She said, well, Cassie Culver is looking for someone to teach how to run her little sound system. She had a little Bogan sound system um, because she's tired of singing and setting up her own PA at all at the same time. And it took me a year, literally a year to track her down to, for her to have time to talk with me. But once I, I talked with her, she really was very interested in training me. So she taught me how to run her little Bogan sound system. And her partner then, Mary Spotswood Pugh, started, was starting a um, women's music series at a local gay club called Club Madame. And every Thursday night, they would, she would have women's music. And so what that meant was the women's music performers from all over the country, they were starting to now tour, um, like Chris Williamson and Holly Meir and Castleberry and Dupre and Maxine Feldman. And they would come and play at this little club. And I was doing the sound on Cassie's system. And so I got to know a lot of these performers as they came through DC. And the women who came to hear the concert um, got to see me do sound and like the sound. And so then I started to get hired for little political events like at All Souls Church and, um, and to do those kind of sound jobs. And eventually, um, and, and uh, Cassie and I became friends, um, uh, because so many people were asking me to do sound and they, the, the news were getting bigger that we had to start renting sound um, to, do, to do them. We couldn't do them with Cassie's little system. So at some point we got this bright idea we should start a sound company, Cassie and I together, and we called it Woman Sound, and that was in 1975. So... That's, that's how, how I got from agent. Oh, and in the meantime, while I was hunting down Cassie, um, I, I started DJing at uh, Sophie's Parlor at Georgetown University. It was the, one of the first early women's radio state, women's music radio stations in the country. And I learned how to DJ. Um, so that's got me into the technical stuff and dexterity with some of the equipment. Um, so that's, that was really a good start for me. Oh, I'll say that's really interesting. So what was your radio experience? That was it. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it was, it went, the women's music, women's music was um, starting to take off all over the country. And there was just this hunger for women to, to listen to it. And so that's some of these radio stations started and, um, it was within um, WGTV. I can remember the, 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 it was within their station. It was a liberal station, even though Georgetown was a pretty conservative school. Um, in fact, there's a whole story about that because eventually the school tried to close WGTV down because it was so liberal. And it was this huge fight in DC and lots of rallies and Woman Sound would do the sound at all their rallies. And um, so I got to be a part of all that too. Uh, but anyway, once I started my found casting and started doing sound, um, I, I stopped doing um, Sophie's Parlor. And by the way, it, Sophie's Parlor was a collective because that was an unusual experience for me too to be in a collective and how that worked and run. But a lot of those um, early political groups were collected, collectively run. Yeah, um, tell me, a how would you explain the collective? Well, a collective is, um, in theory, uh, you, you operate on consensus rather than a, a, any kind of hierarchy. And you don't really, like my other political work in um, Boston, um, you know, you would vote things up and down and, and, and function as a democracy that way. Um, but in a, in a collective, it was sort of more of a, a, a liberal type of system of how to communicate and to run things rather than in a hierarchy. So, yeah. So we would meet in somebody's house and talk about Sophie's parlor and how, you know, go over the records, all LTs then, and, you know, pick out what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and what we wanted to focus on and that kind of thing. 
That's cool. And so um, Women's Sound, that, that was actually a company? Um, yes. Okay, a sound company for concerts. So how did you guys get your first gear? Yeah, well, we, we, we really became, started to become very successful very fast in terms of, I mean, Washington, D.C. just has a huge political community. And there's so many events going on so many rallies and so many political concerts that once people started to hear us, our sound, like at All Souls Church, um, they just wanted us. They wanted that mix. They wanted the sound that we were creating. And how did we get there was that um, when I, when I was trying to do sound um, uh, and start a company too, I don't know which came first, but um, I went around to every sound company in town to try and volunteer and to get training. And they were all run by guys. Um, there were no other women. And most of them wouldn't give me the time of day. I mean, they wouldn't even let me work for free. But this one company, National Sound, out in um, uh, outside of DC in Virginia, um, really was kind of fascinated with me and Cassie showing up and wanting to learn sound. And so they were very generous in, uh, and they were a really good sound company. They went on tour with, I can't think of that big rock and roll band out of Canada, but anyway, they were very well known and a really great sound company. And it was, um, uh, they, they rented us equipment and they get, you know, rented us really good equipment. So you didn't have to worry if it didn't work or not. And we would put it in our truck and take it to like all souls church or whatever. And, you know, we knew nothing. And uh, sometimes I couldn't make it work. And I would actually have to run down the hall to a payphone and call up Tommy or Greg, those are two guys. And they would troubleshoot me, help me learn how to go troubleshoot. And then I'd run back down to the auditorium and do what they said. And then I'd run back to the phone and do it, you know, tell them, well, it's still not working. What do I do? Type thing. And we get it working finally, you know? And so anyway, eventually, um, I bought a sound system from them because, you know, eventually we figured we kind of needed our own stuff because it was really tiresome to run out to Lorton, Virginia and rent every time. And I wanted to know where everything was and what I had. And so I rented, uh, bought equipment and bought a 14 foot truck. And, you know, we just kept growing and getting bigger and bigger and doing more and more things. Yeah, that was Tom, Tommy Lithicum and Greg Lucas. And they became really good friends and they were loved Cassie's music. They really supported her too and her singing. And, um, and when I went out there, I mean, they were just amazing guys. Greg was running, a, uh, they also fabricated equipment. He was running a, a wall saw, a, you know, big giant wall saw. And, and we walked in and we were watching him do this. And then, and then we realized he was blind. I mean, the guy was completely blind. He had been for years and he was doing all these amazing things with sound. It was just incredible. And he had the most amazing ears, you know. You're listening to the Music History Project. If you'd like to see the interviews that the podcast is based on and many more interesting interviews related to the music industry, go to nam.org slash library. Well, I sure hope you guys are enjoying this awesome interview. It just felt like such a uh, important story that needs to be documented. And I'm so glad it's now part of the NAM Oral History Program. Uh, you know, there's so many important aspects of Bowdoin's life and career, and she was so willing to share everything with us. I think it's just amazing and, uh, and very helpful for us to understand that era and how important her work really was. Um, and in that was her partner, uh, Cassie Culver, uh, she was born in 1944 and passed away in 2019. Uh, they were together for a very long time. And um, Cassie was a very important person in her own right. She uh, was a singer. She was a founder of a publishing company called Sweet Alliance Music. And um, she recorded a couple of albums, a kind of a folk rock type of style. Um, there's one out there called Three Gypsies. Um, there's a song on there that uh, she, I think she plays the auto harp. The harmonica, the guitar, um, and of course she sings. Um, I'm late again is uh, the name of the song, and uh, just really clever um, 
play on words and um, just a, a great style. And in listening to that um, to that album, I think you can hear uh, the sincerity of her. And I think that's something that Bowden really um, appreciated in her partner uh, was just that that love that they had for each other. And I think an important element of her career. So uh, we want to be sure to include that segment of the interview. Uh, so let's get into Bowden talking about uh, Cassie Culver. Well, Cassie um, has an amazing background. She um, she started out as a street singer, um, her own story, and um, she she ended up um, she she wrote. She's an incredible songwriter. She started writing when she was a kid, kind of locked in her bedroom with her guitar, and she listened to a lot of Dylan, a lot of Eartha Kitt. Um, and her, in, in my opinion, her songs are incredible. They're so beautiful. They're poetry. And she continued to write songs her whole life. Um, but she, um, she sang in the street and sang little gigs and ended up uh, take, getting herself to Woodstock. She, she didn't perform at Woodstock. I have a great picture of her performing in the audience, though, at Woodstock. And and she did know some of the performers, but somehow she met um, the head of Bearsville Records at Woodstock. And he really liked her music and got her hooked up with um, the record company. And she moved to Woodstock and started recording her, her first album. And um, it's some of her really beautiful songs, great songs. But according to her, in the middle of it, she decided to come out as a lesbian and they they literally dumped her. Um, she was going to go on the road. They were going to send her out on the road. And um, uh, she they were, we, they were thinking of hooking her up with Janis Joplin's band because Janis had passed. In fact, Cassie had met Janis Joplin at some point. Um, but all of that fell apart because she... She came out as a lesbian. A lot of her songs were uh, for women um, and about women, even though they could be sung generically. Um, anyway, as record companies went in those days, um, just like in, in Motown, uh, they sat on her songs for 20 years. I mean, they had the rights to them, all of her best songs. So she was devastated. And she came, she came to DC, back to DC. She grew up in Bethesda, and that's when I met her. She because she um, she got she she met some uh, women producers and some of the women who were just getting started in women's music in DC. And she sang at uh, Libby's farewell concert um, at at um, George Washington University, and that's when I decided I wanted to become a sound engineer because I saw Judy Delugash mixing on stage. But I also heard Cassie sing, and yeah, I must admit, I fell in love with her that night. She was just so amazing. But anyway, Judy um, uh, steered me towards Cassie because she had a small PA. And um, she, Judy said she didn't want to keep mixing and singing at the same time because her women's music career was starting to take off. Um, so I did track her down, and she did teach me how to run her little PA. It was a little Bogan PA. But... The reason she could do that was that Cassie not only was a singer, songwriter, but she just was an amazing, amazingly creative, technical person. She she learned everything. She she knew how to do sound and she knew how to do electronics and, and all that stuff. And, and she could even um, at one time um, when we were together, she we went down to her dad's and she, she took the whole engine out of her, her VW bus and put another engine back in. And we were down there for a whole weekend, but she had all the tools. So she was like her dad. Her dad was an electronics at an electronic company in Bethesda. So she just soaked up all that stuff, but she could actually do that kind of thing. And she could do carpentry. And, and then eventually she started a, a landscaping company. And when she was in Woodstock, she she uh, did organic gardening. She lived out in the country, and she I swear she was one of the first organic gardeners. But when she had a, her her singer career went on a hiatus for a while, she started a landscape landscape company out in Arlington, Virginia, 
And she ran that organically too. Um, so yeah, she was pretty amazing. But she um, she she put out an album and uh, it was a really beautiful, wonderful album. I, I was the assistant sound engineer on that. And uh, she she went on the road and and eventually she started the Bell Star Band. She really wanted to move uh, from being an acoustic uh, uh, singer. She played the auto harp too, and she played the electric piano and the harmonica. And she started the Bell Star Band. Um, and that she went out on the road with Helen Hook and Pamela Brandt, and they're the ones who started the Deadly Nightshade. And they also had an early album and early success. Um, and also had struggled with the music industry for being for being out lesbians uh, in terms of getting recorded. What is the name of that album that you helped with? It's called Three Gypsies. Are there any? Uh, is there a particular song off that album that's meaningful to you? Uh, the one I like the best is uh, called Sacred River, and it's. Um, it's very much about um, combining uh, lesbian spirituality and sexuality and nature. And Cassie was very spiritual. And a lot of her songs bring in her own idea of spirituality. A lot of her, a lot of her songs are um, very uplifting and uh, danceable in a certain sense country style. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. That's amazing. What do you consider some of the milestones as far as the growth of uh, women's sound? Oh boy, there were so many. Um, well, we, let's see, uh, early one in 1978, I have a whole, I mean, I, 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 one of the things I did was go through my archives and Cassie's archives. So I have coherent lists of everything that we did. And I sent all our archives off to Smith College in the uh, Sophie, uh, Sophia collection, which is a women's rights collection. Um, and so, so anyway, so I have, I've been going, I went through this before I uh, started talking to you today so I could remember some of these things, but an early one was, was in 1978 when we did um, a rally at the Capitol on the, the uh, west side of the step, west side of the Capitol. And it was the um, ERA um, uh, rally. I think the first ERA rally in DC in 1978, sponsored by the National Organization for Women. And, you know, that was a big deal for us to set up at the Capitol and to interface with the Capitol Police and, you know, all the, all the meetings you have to go through to, to get permission. And I mean, now to care all that, but I, I would be at the meetings because I'm bringing the sound system and that whole learning curve of doing that. But the thrill of doing your sound at the Capitol and having it go all the way out to the mall, you know, because of course I had to rent. But then I, I think probably National brought supplemental equipment because I don't think I could fit enough equipment in my truck to do that. So I, I work closely with national a lot for the bigger stuff like that. Um, but the, and then Gloria Steinem um, spoke, she was the key speaker and she um, actually sent me a letter uh, to, to, to thank me and to compliment us unsolicited. And just because she was so in awe that these women were doing all the sound, she'd never seen anything like it. So, so I have that framed. Very nice. <laughs> so that was a big one. And then um, uh, on the mall, I mean, because of now, I did all, Women's Sound did all of now sound from then on. And so we did all of their big rallies. So those are really important. Like the last big one was 2004. Um, and, and then in between, um, the other ones that really stand out for me are the, the really large um, LGBTQ rallies on the mall. They were in uh, 1983, 1987, and 1993, I think. And, you know, figuring out how to do that. And I, of course, I did that with National. But the last one in 1993, working closely with National and also uh, uh, another uh, technical um, um, guy who did who did a lot of the satellite up, uplinks and figured out, helped me figure out the delay system. 
And that was the first time that we were aware of on the mall that um, every single person could hear from uh, 3rd Street all the way past the Washington Monument because we had delay videos and delay sound. Um, and, and we figured it out so that, you know, they were just per perfectly um, linked so that you could, you, could, you could hear without the delay and you could see um, all the way down the mall. And that, that was uh, about a million people in the street. And we had with those, when, once you get to those big rally things, you're doing um, sound in um, uh, concert venues, you're doing sound in, in uh, hotel parties, you're doing other uh, supplemental stages. And so for that, like I probably hired three or four different sound companies. And when I brought one of my friends, um, Myrna Johnson, who had a sound company up in Boston by then, a women's sound company, and she brought her stuff down to do one of the stages. So, I mean, they were, and then I was also doing technical production. I expanded into what I call technical production. I wasn't even personally doing sound. I was just putting it all together. So by that, I meant um, I was in charge of getting the porta potties there, the dumpsters, you know, security, fencing, everything. So I have, by then I had expanded into doing that kind of work um, for, for a lot of the big rallies down at the mall and also festivals. We, we, we really got into festivals. Women's Sound did um, all the Hispanic festivals, Adams Morgan Day Festival, all the mayors, uh, Marion Berry's, um, uh, the New Year's Eve festivals out on the street. And, you know, and so all of those would have four or five stages. And so Women's Sound would do a couple of the stages, but then I'd get other sound companies. Entertainment Sound Productions was another company I worked with closely in DC. Um, yeah. So it really, it just mushroomed. We were working all the time. We hope you're enjoying this special, special interview for Women's History Month. What I find very interesting about Bowden's story is that she lent a voice through her technical talents to people who did not have a voice or who needed to gain a voice. That's right, yeah. Women's Sound was a rental company uh, that had all kinds of equipment, you know, from microphones and PA systems. Um, and it grew very, very rapidly. At first, she was the one who was at all of those protests and, and um, marches and so on. Uh, but it quickly grew. And she was really the right place at the right time for that um, with some of those um, anti-Vietnam uh, uh, marches and demonstrations and so on. And it grew to... Uh, really uh, an enormity because that was the place, right? I mean, Washington, D.C., we think about that mall and how enormous it is. You can't hear somebody at the foot of Abraham Lincoln if you're past the stairs. I mean, it's just too massive a place. So having that equipment really was a, a vital thing. And we're lucky uh, that Bowdoin had the, the gift of knowing how to set all that stuff up and engineer all of those uh, those. Uh, protests and, and marches. I have a question, Dan. Yes? Can we credit Bowdoin for having recordings of some of those iconic speeches, like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech? Well, she came on a little bit after uh, that particular, uh, that was in the early 60s. But yes, uh, the ones that she uh, was involved with, she did uh, record a lot of those. And the music Mm. Um, you know, when Joan Baez would come and, and sing or Peter, Paul and Mary would come to the, the foot of uh, the Lincoln Memorial and, and sing protest songs, she recorded them. And the, the women's music movement um, that we know so well now, Lily Fair and things like that, um, really started with Bowdoin, in my opinion. You know, she was the one who said, hey, let's record this. This is more valuable than just for the audience that's here. Uh, let's mark this. And I think that had a lot to do with her background as a librarian. You know, she knew about archiving uh, important things and she was standing right there watching these important things happen in front of her. Um, and she was smart enough to, to document it. That's really incredible. I think we should all say thank you to Bowden for this. So um, what were some of the challenges that you faced? I'm kind of thinking about a, 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 a women's owned sound company in the early 70s. Did you guys have challenges? 
Yeah, well, um, there was a money challenge, of course, and that was that was part of the problem that not only did, were all the other sound companies owned by guys, but they typically had more money than we did and had access to more money. And so it was easier for them to figure out how to get all this equipment that they needed. Where for us, we had no money and it was harder to get loans. So in the very beginning, we got a loan from the Feminist Credit Union um, was our very first little loan to get this equipment. And so we wouldn't have been able to do that probably if we if there hadn't been a Feminist Credit Union. And that um, there was a whole network of um, different women's businesses that sprang up during that period. Uh, and we all supported each other. That it, you know, and particularly around the concert industry, there was Lama's Bookstore that sold the um, tickets and helped promote the concerts. And there was uh, Aerial Lights, a lighting company that developed, Tina, the printer, who did all the printing. And, um, and you know, it's just the list. Sue Sasser, who had Grease Palace, who fixed all the trucks and cars. And, you know, so we all just, it was a synergy of women's, women-owned businesses. And then Roadwork developed, which is uh, was a women's production company. And they put women on the road and uh, uh, produced a lot of the concerts there. And they also became more and more successful and would have Holly near at the, you know, a Constitution Hall. And, um, you know, so, so we were all doing interwoven wonderful things. That's wonderful. I'm reminded of a, um, an element in your resume that I found really interesting um, that you uh, curated the um, Breaking the Sound Barrier, women in uh, the women's mu music movement. Oh, down here? Yeah. Yes, yes. And I, so I kind of wonder, I mean, uh, who do you see as being, or maybe who's the, the wrong word, but what was that movement like for you and, and who were some of the key people? Oh my God, that, that woman, uh, that movement was my life. I mean, I, I was in it from, you know, starting my sound company in 75. Well, actually I went to the Nash, first National Women's Music Festival in 1974. And I mixed there with, and I met my best friend, who's best friend today, who is one of the few female mix engineers from the West Coast, uh, Margaret Fredericks. And she came from San Francisco. Um, and she ended up working for McCune Sound. Um, and then she ended up also, um, she was went, got in the union, IATSE, and uh, did sound at the Karen Theater in San Francisco. She was the main sound engineer there. So many of us went on to, you know, that's how we got started because of the women's music movement. We could learn, learn how to do this. And we had the opportunity to mix at really big events like the National Women's Music Festival. And actually Cassie sang there too. But um, anyway, from then until I, I sold my sound company and stopped going to the festivals in the late 1990s, um, uh, that, that's all I did was uh, work within the women's music industry. And I, I had the great fortune of being able to be the sound engineer at most of the big festivals. So what I would do is um, I would do Sister Fire, which is roadwork production in Tacoma Park. Maryland in the early spring. And then I would, my sound company would go to the Southern Women's Music Festival in the South. And then we would drive to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois for the National Women's Music Festival. Then they would take the equipment home and do all the gigs. And I would fly on to Michigan and do the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which was the biggest and the most, I mean, not the most fun, but amazing because that's where all the, all the different artists, all the different um, political people had all these workshops and craft space and a lot of conversations went on um, about what was going on and we got to know each other and we supported each other. And that, you know, I was there for a couple of weeks because we'd have to set up and PA and it was all outdoors camping and all that. And then I would fly out, fly off to the West Coast Women's Music Festival. Um, and that, that was Labor Day. So that was my summer. And, and I was in a tent, you know, with my sleeping bag <laughs> and doing sound. So it was wonderful. But so it, you know, and that's, that's how I learned my skill. And that's um, how woman sound functioned 
was encouraged and grew. And, and then because of all that, I could um, turn around and I got accepted. I, well, I got a master's in audio technology in the middle of the American University because I wanted to know more about electricity and electronics. Um, but because of that credential and everything I had done, I was accepted in the PhD program at University of Maryland. Um, and then I taught there. So it, it just, you know, that was my life. It's, it got me to where I ended up, which was as a professor. And I love that. And then I got to teach all these students about everything I had learned. So it was a wonderful, wonderful trip. Just to answer your question, who are the, some of the main people? Um, well, it was a cast of thousands. It really was. But names that people might remember is Holly Near and Chris Williamson. Um, let's see, Castle Perry and Dupre, uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock um, was out of D.C. Uh, and I, I, I did all of their sound in D.C. for quite a few years. Just They were just amazing. Um, and their daughter, Tosh, Bernice Johnson Reagan's daughter, Toshi Reagan, was one of the ones. And uh, just women from all over the country. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really, really neat. Very cool. I'm glad I asked you about that. It's fascinating to me and, and um, so important. Uh, you know, that's the other thing, you know, at the beginning I was saying, you know, do you feel like you're a pioneer? Um, you have been involved with some amazing things that I think have really helped us um, over the years. And it's kind of interesting from my little perspective, I wanted to share with you that um, the, the music products industry has always been sort of thought as uh, mom and pop. You always hear that, you know, there's a mom and pop music store at the corner and, and that kind of thing. But I had a very difficult time 23 or four years ago when I started to find women. As much as mom came first in the description of the mom and pop, there weren't a lot of women in uh, the music industry uh, on this side. And it... So I would often find one or two and, you know, whenever I could, it was actually my goal to have at least 15% of the collection be females. And in the early days, that was actually really difficult to do, mm -hmm. to, be, to be honest. Uh, I'm proud to say it's 18% now. And so I'm, I'm continuing to work on that. Um, but when I would interview someone like uh, the wife of the, of the, they founded a music store together, um, it, it was asking, you know, what were the challenges and, and you, were you treated differently as a woman and, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I find myself not asking that question as much now. You know, it, we're not asking that type of thing. It's more of you belong here. It's not that we're pointing out that you're different. Not that I meant to do that, but it was so rare to, to run across somebody, I was kind of fascinated by this sort of anomaly. And, and it, that's really kind of not the way it is now. I mean, mm. is, are those the kind of changes you've seen too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we really do feel that we had a huge impact on every aspect of the industry. Um, because not only, I mean, we've been talking about sound companies and women's musicians, but why, why we call it a network is that production companies started and women's record companies started and women's um, distribution companies started. Like, do, are you familiar with Goldenrod? Yeah. And so they started out, as she says in Radical Harmonies, um, Terry Grant, you know, they started out to try and make a catalog of all women's music that there is. And then they discovered that there was so much that they could barely do that. And, and they still distribute music today um, because I, I did digitize all of Cassie's stuff and I put it online uh, at, their, at their online place. And so, you know, and, and then, you know, the women learned the lighting companies and, um, you know, so, so yes, I mean, in, in every aspect of the women's music, of the music industry, uh, women were able to to do more and to get more recognition. And I do think that the record companies had a lot to do with that, like um, Olivia Records. When they put out um, Chris Williamson's first album, The Changer and the Change, in 1978, I think. 
I have to look that up. Five, 75, maybe. Um, it, it was the highest grossing independent album of the time. And that just kind of made the industry go, whoa, who are these people? What are they doing? You know, so, um, yeah. And I think it's um, fascinating now this sort of this full circle of um, your, your time as a professor you talked a little bit about that and your whole demeanor changed. You're, you smiled, you, it was just so fun to see you talk about that uh, because it seems like this is something that you've always wanted to do. Is that the case or it, it sort of is just came about and now you realize what a great fit it is? Um, I think it, it makes me happy that way, not because it's something I always wanted to do. I mean, I think the music is what I always wanted to do and was doing. Um, but I think it really, it made me so happy to, as I call it, it came, everything came full circle because um, at, at University of Maryland, um, they, while I was there, uh, we designed the Clary Smith Performing Arts Center was built. And I was on the, the committee as the, the technician to help advise on, on acoustics and that kind of thing. Um, and then my office was actually in that building. And I worked closely with the producers at the Clary Smith Center. And so, and then I got to develop my own seminar, um, which is this, this seminar about the power of sound in, uh, in, in uh, social and political situations. And, and then because I worked with this, the Clary Smith Center, they were bringing in it turned out, I mean, I really wasn't advising them on who to bring in, but they brought in people that I had worked with at, and mixed their sound through those amazing years in DC. So people like Steve Reich and um, uh, Isai Barnwell from Sweet Hunter in the Rock um, and Holly Muir, they came to perform at the Christmas Center and I got to take my students and then, and then I was teaching them all about all of this, you know, the power of music and sound. And then the performers would come back to my class and teach the students, you know, and talk to the students. And that was just, that's the full circle. Um, so yeah, it was a great bunch of people. That's fascinating to me. You know, one thing we didn't really cover, I'm kind of, it's a little bit difficult to ask you to, to give us a, a one particular example, but um, in thinking about your experiences uh, with sound and running these events, um, is there anything that you could tell us an example of what it is like for you when everything is going right? It, you know, that the experience of participating in looking around you and seeing these people really getting into it and, you know, feeling something and, you know, being united in a cause um, because of what they're experiencing. And just what, what is that like for you? Oh, it's just pure ecstasy, really. It's, I mean, one thing around that is mixing for me was like being a conductor. That's what I would relate it to. Um, because I had so much, I felt like I was so much part of the mix, the sound, as almost like a performer in, in terms of how I had to, um, you know, coordinate with all the musicians. And so that, that was just a, such a great musical outlet for me. So it's sort of like I was doing music. Um, and so it was a it was equally as wonderful as playing the horn um, in terms of music and creativity. So, so when that was working with the group, whatever it was, and like you were saying, and the sound, you know, had to be really good, which was one of our goals. I always say woman sound was created to give really clear, inexpensive sound so that everybody could hear well. And it was really important to me that it wasn't distorted, that it was evenly spread out throughout the audience and that it was pleasing. It was aesthetically pleasing. 
So, you know, when that was all working and the audience was, was having such a great time because they weren't bothered by the sound and could really feel it. Um, and the musicians were having a really great time. Yeah. There was nothing, nothing else like that. I was just, it was like playing. It was like playing the French horn. The, the thrill that I got out of that. Yeah. It was great. Thanks for listening to the music history project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.